I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Dunbar has been writing books since kindergarten and worked freelance as a ghostwriter on her path to becoming a novelist. In 2018, she won the HAL Prize for Fiction, and her stories have appeared in the New York Times, the South Carolina Review, Midwest Review, and others. Her essays about living off the grid can be heard on Wisconsin Public Radio. One essay involving her encounter with a mother bear was televised as an animated short. Before devoting herself to writing, Carol earned her BFA in theater and worked as a professional actor based out of Minneapolis. The daughter of a naval officer, Carol was born on the island of Guam and bounced around to different schools across the globe growing up. She moved to the Midwest for love, married a Minnesota boy, and never left. She writes from a solar-powered office on the second floor of a water tower in the woods of northern Wisconsin, where she lives with her husband, two kids, and a giant Alaskan Malamute. Welcome, Carol. Thank you. It's so wonderful to be here. Carol, tell me how you came to live off the grid. Sure. So 20 years ago, I was not a working writer. I was a working actor. I was best known for what my aunt called my smoking and gambling commercials. (laughs) I did commercials for casinos and I did as much live theater as possible. And I came to the realization that I was a storyteller working in the wrong art form. And it was kind of a heart sinking thing to realize because I didn't Mm -hmm. know what to do about it. I had invested decades of my life learning this craft. It was my first love. Everyone that I knew was in the theater and that was my identity. And so I didn't know how to like extract myself from this world. I didn't know how to say no to all these opportunities I was getting. And then one day my husband sat down on a bench in an airport next to a newspaper with an advertisement circled in ink for an off-grid homestead with a working sawmill. He had been an actor too, but he'd you know, figured out that that wasn't the lifestyle for him. He had taught himself woodworking. He had this vision to build furniture from trees he knew. I wanted to be a writer. So we just left our life. We came to the woods wearing our city shoes and our bug spray with a 15-month-old girl and an aging dog. And we did everything wrong. What a great story. Someone said once that was definitely true for me. It was like, you can either be Juliet in real life or you can play her on stage. And oh, I love that. It's true. I met my Romeo and I was never planning on being a mom. I was never planning on having kids. I was super focused on my career and I have had a full and rich life. And I feel like that's an easy thing as an artist to fall into that trap of thinking you should only be doing your art, but you need to live your life or you'll have nothing mm-hmm. to write about, to talk about, to express Let's talk about writing off the grid. What does that look like? Well, I suppose it looks like writing, you know, anywhere, except that we have to deal with catastrophes from time to time. We were a couple actors trying to live off grid. So we made like every mistake that you can make trying to live this way. We froze our pipes like (laughs) lots of times. We endured a full winter with no running water when the kids were small. So wow, it was intense. Like I would trick my friends into come to visit us and stay in a hotel and then we'd go, you know, shower at their hotel or I would shower, you know, at the gym. We hauled 
buckets of water. Like we made friends with the little Four Corners gas station store that was like, you know, 20 minutes down the road and we would fill buckets and jugs and then we would warm it on the wood stove and fill the bathtub. Like baths were an intense thing. Everything that we did was time consuming. Like when you live off grid, your appliances are gas and not electric. So Mm -hmm. when our refrigerator started to go, like it would aggressively melt things like ice cream, you know, and I would literally be putting pans of snow in the refrigerator and rotate that we would melt snow for water actually during the winter so you've got these physical chores that you're doing but I actually appreciate them because they're a good balance to the cerebral activity that writing is and it gives me a way to like churn and stew and think about okay what am I doing what is the knot I'm trying to unravel right now with whatever I'm working on and it's much healthier to have that to go to than to you know play other things in your head. Listeners cannot see your writing shed if you want to call it that you're not living under a tarp. I just want to get that straight. They can't see this beautiful room that you're in with this beautiful window with these trees outside, but don't worry too much about Carol. Carol is not under a tarp right now. She is under some water containers, but not a tarp. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) So I heard a recording of a story about two moms who were strolling in the woods with their children. The story you told. Can you tell us how things like that informed your writing? Oh, gosh. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, that was a big one for me because when we first got out here, I struggled less with the things we lived without than I did the things that I lived with. So I wasn't prepared. Like you have this like romantic idea of what living in nature will be like. You know, it's all pretty, <laughs> the trees. You don't think about bugs and mice and voles. You don't think about porcupines. You don't think about the skunk that won't let you up your wood pile, you know? And I was struggling with it. My young people that I was raising, they loved all the creatures. And I remember when my daughter handed me a snake, she literally put it oh in. Oh, my, my Lord. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I did. I like threw the snake in the air, you know, and it landed on her stroller. So then I'm like, trying to get the snake off the stroller. So I'm behaving in these weird ways while I'm trying to teach my kids to respect nature and love nature. And I realized I have a problem with nature. Like my impulse is to kind of squash anything that's in my way, right? But when you're living this wild, like when I go to a campground, I'm like, oh, this is like nature or Disneyland. Like we are in the wild, you know? It's different. You're encountering creatures all the time. And you can't kill them all. You can't squish them all. You can't tell them to get out of your way. Because you're in their neighborhood. Exactly. I was really struggling with this. When three weeks after my son was born, we were on a stroller ride. And I don't think this made it in the final cut. But the reason we were on a stroller ride is because when you live off grid, the United States Postal Service will not have your mail pass where the power lines end. So our mailbox is at the end of the power lines, which is four mile round trip from my front door. So I went to get the mail. (laughs) And so I had my beauties in their stroller. You know, Mm -hmm. I had just given birth. And on the way back, they fell asleep and this mother bear crossed the road in front of me and she was so close. I think I wrote, I could have hit her with a sippy cup and I'm like, not 
good with aiming. She crosses the road and like she had these feet that were like dinner plates and it was just this like graceful, lumbering, silky fur mm. motion. And then her cubs came out right behind her. And the thing that was so shocking to me was that I had just been on the phone with the DNR because we had a mother bear and her cubs plundering our bird feeder and we didn't know what to do. And that was when I learned that brown bears are totally harmless. They're very sweet. They're not aggressive or hostile unless you get between a mother and her cubs. Yep. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, you do not want to do that. So these cubs come out. And they saw me and they squeaked. They made the cutest little squeaky sounds. And then they jumped back into the brush and I stopped and the mother bear was across the road. And all of a sudden the mother bear just rises up on her hind legs. Like what? And she's like enormous. And I'm right between her and her cubs. Like we were practically in a straight oh, line. No. And I just like my body went noodly and I just literally sank to the pavement. And my friends always joke that I was hiding behind my baby stroller and like putting my kids in the front. But I literally just sank. I was behind the stroller. My kids were asleep. And I had this moment out on the road where I had to figure out how to let this mother bear know I was not going to hurt her cubs. And it was the most intense experience. Like, I don't know how much time passed. I don't have a really good idea of it. It felt like 20 minutes. I was out there crouched behind the stroller. Mm -hmm. And the little cubs kept trying to come out and then they would run back and they were adorable. Like at one point, like the sibling, like pushed one of the bears out, like, ha, oh, I dare you. And they like tumbled out onto the road, like oh. literally somersaulting and got to his yeah. feet, went, looked at me and was like, and then ran back. <laughs> they were so cute. I realized that the way I could communicate to this mother bear because they have terrible eyes. I didn't know this then. But the way I could communicate to this mother bear was by being still. I was trying to let her know I understood her. And like I could see her nose going crazy. And I really do believe she knew I had my young with me. Probably better for you because you had your babies with you that she recognized that I, I, you I had she yours. Did. She has hers. Yeah, I really do. And she never came down. Like she stood up there on her yeah. hind legs. I don't know how hard that is to do, <laughs> but she was up there the whole time and her eyes were just these glittering flecks and she was just watching and grunting and snorting. And I just felt like it was this tension that if I did the wrong thing, she would snap. And so that's why I was just trying to be as still as I possibly could. And I don't know how much time passed, but the thing that finally saved me was a car came by. And I don't know what that car thought, because I was in the middle of the road, crouched behind a baby stroller. <laughs> <laughs> but they swerved around me. And I remember seeing the faces. There were kids in the back and they had their little noses pressed against the glass. Like, what? <laughs> I used the car like a shield and I just sprinted because I had a jogger stroller and I just sprinted as fast as I could. And I was only you know, maybe 200, 300 feet from my driveway. And I never saw that mother bear again. But that exchange changed me. It taught me that I no longer assume 
that what I'm doing is the most important thing. Like all these other little creatures, they're just as busy as I am. They've got their life. And I respect the hell out of that now. I'm about to touch a sensitive topic, your husband's accident, which was the springboard of your novel, The Net Beneath Us. Some people in your position might've been maxed out by the stress of all of it. Somehow you mustered the wherewithal to let it propel a novel. So (laughs) can you talk about that? Sure. Yes. That was such an intense time in my life. And I feel like that novel is a time capsule of that period. And I'm so glad I wrote when my kids were small, just as a side note for like writers who mothers, parents who are struggling to try to be creative when your kids are small, just do what you can because you forget things. I'm so glad I worked through it. So the accident happened four years into our adventure off grid. Things were going really well. We had established a furniture business. So my husband was building. I was doing the finish work. We were traveling around the country doing art shows. He was winning awards. And one day his table saw jumped back and Mm -hmm. he lost the use of his right hand for a full year. And as hard as that sounds, you know, it could have been much, much worse. And in the novel, it is, you know, of course, but I was able to get a job in town, but it was fall. Winter was coming. Our kids were ages two and five. And I did not know how to split firewood. I had never like really learned it. I let him do that. And we had no woodpile. We literally had no woodpile. And this was how we heated our home. So I was trying to split firewood. (laughs) I was trying to earn a living. I was still mom. And, you know, my husband lost a hand. So like, I mean, it was still there, but he was healing. And like Mm -hmm. everything we do, like we don't have a dishwasher. We are the dishwasher. We (laughs) We don't use a toaster. It's been 20 years since I've had a clothes dryer. We do everything the long way, right? That takes hands. So this was such an intense time, but it was also such a loving time. It really showed me who my husband was as a person. I mean, he just Mm. rose to this place of such dignity and grace. He was in so much pain and he never once snapped at the kids. Never. Mm. He was so dignified with how he handled that. And he was so aware of all the extra work that was put on me. He was 100% supportive of me writing this novel. He knew I needed that. He knew I needed a place to go where I could put all this stuff that I was going through that would be safe for me, where Mm -hmm. I could just put it all. And so I wrote myself through that experience. And it was very much a case of write what you know. I was reaching for the low fruit, but I didn't understand my story arc and I didn't find my main character until I flipped that around and did the write what you don't know. Because when I started my main character from all the things she didn't know about living this way, Mm -hmm. that's when the story really became interesting. Oh, wow. So how long did it take you to write this? 12 years. Wow. Okay, you don't look old enough to be able to talk about 20 years ago. I did not catch that. I don't know what you're doing in the woods, but it's paying off for you. Yeah, it's called forest bathing. It's this real thing. 
So how is your husband now? He's good. He's healed. He's building again. The business hasn't fully yet recovered from that. So he's kind of starting to think about relaunching his website and really getting back into that. He's been really focused on building around here. You know, we are fully 100% solar energy right now. Mm -hmm. And he and my kids, my son, especially, they built the system. They designed it. It's huge. We have this big solar array, my office, my internet, our house, everything, 100% powered by the sun. It's so cool. We're all leaving our footprint, but... Mm -hmm. You've got to be able to sleep so much better at night. Mm -hmm. Okay, as long as the bears stay away. We're not making an impact on the environment. I mean, we did for a while. Like we were running diesel engines Mm -hmm. for our electricity. And when you're running these big smelly machines to make Mm -hmm. your electricity, you're really mindful in a whole different way of what you're doing. And, you know, also living out here. I remember when this deer, this mother had her doe like really close to the house and she left the doe there and then we found her on a walk and our dog was terrorizing this little baby deer. It just made me so aware of how we humans affect all these other lives. Tell us about the story. Anapanethas is about a young family building their house in the woods of Wisconsin when a logging accident changes everything. And the wife-mother figure determines to carry on while caring for their two small kids in the unfinished house that her husband was building for them. And this is a house with no running water no split firewood for heat, and she's running these diesel engines to generate their electricity. But she's determined to stay in this house and to finish it because she's haunted by her regrets. Listen to just the little preview that McMillan had. The narrator does a wonderful job with it. I will be downloading that. Cassandra Campbell does an incredible Mm -hmm. job with it. Yeah, I love my audiobook. Realize there is a through line between you and Elsa, your main character. You have similar experiences. How are you different? So we both grew up moving around, but Elsa comes from a very wealthy family. I do not. She's used to a certain kind of privilege. We both share the fact that neither of us consider ourselves country women. And I really want everybody to know that her name was Elsa before the Disney movie Frozen came out. (laughs) It's important to me, but she is in many ways a princess. That's very much part of what she realizes. She's the kind of person who walks into a room and says, I need a dress and people will make her dress. Whereas I'm the kind of person I don't ever want anybody's help. I'm going to do it myself. So she's used to people helping her out and she needs to kind of learn self-reliance and independence. Another big area that we overlap and part of what helped me to stay with this book so long, Mm -hmm. because that's a long time to be working on one book. And a lot of people ask me, well, why didn't you just give up on it? And it was because I was struggling with something that I didn't know was an issue. Like after my husband's accident, I kind of realized that I had no friends as an adult, like good friends, like deep in a body you could call and say i need help yeah i didn't know how to trust people i didn't understand this idea of community i'd never experienced it and i was sort of surprised i was kind of appalled actually i was like 
why am I so bad at this? Why am I so bad at like making friends? I'm a grown up, right? <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, what's going on? I really wanted to talk about it. I really wanted to explore it. So I used Elsa, who had a similar background for different reasons, growing up, moving around. And, you know, we worked it out. And one of the things that I discovered was I was always looking for a role model, like a kind of woodsy wise woman who would like, you know, show me how to make tea from forest bark and, <laughs> you know, teach me the ways. And I never found that woman. And the coolest thing I realized writing this novel from all the research I was doing was that the best role models for successful communities and how to be a deep and abiding friend turned out to be the trees, mm -hmm. the root systems, how they take care of each other, how they communicate with each other. It's this whole world. So there's a lot of tree wisdom in that. Oh. What's your big lesson as far as the writing of it? My big lesson is that the writing has to mean something to you. You have to be writing it for personal reasons. There has to be something you're trying to figure out, even if it's just that you want to have fun doing X, Y, Z. It has to be interesting to you first, or it's not going to be interesting to other people. You can't be writing because you want to get published because the publication is nice, but that's not the prize. The prize is what you get out of it and what you learn from the process. That's the big prize. What is next for you? So A Winter's Rhyme, R-I-M-E, releases this fall. What are you reading? What am I reading? So Courtney mom in her book before and after the book deal, she said, when someone mm -hmm. asks you that, you're supposed to lie. <laughs> Are you reading anything? Well, the problem with what I'm reading is I'm not reading like the newest cutting edge thing. Oh, you that's know? okay. I am rereading Raina Marie Rilke letters to a young poet okay. because I have a second book coming out and it's kind of a, the second novel is like tricky and I needed to get my head straight. And I love the advice he has in that book. And my favorite sentence in that book that I came across again that really helped me was he says, if the writing comes from necessity, then it's good. I'm putting stock in that. I read it in college and I loved it. And I kind of give it to college graduates, you know, because mm -hmm. I just think it has some really interesting good, solid advice, especially for a young person who wants mm -hmm. to go into an artistic field. So do you have any advice for new writers? Is it brown nosing to say, listen to this podcast? I <laughs> no, I'm no, go ahead. Writers are so generous. You ask your writer for advice. They will give you the best advice that you've ever heard. And I was listening to your podcast yesterday and I got some really excellent advice about how not to freak out about your second novel. I just, I think asking other writers for advice is a really smart thing to do. All the success I've had in publishing came because I asked uh, writers and I did what they told me. I also talked to editors too, and they gave me good advice. People in the writing industry, if you really ask them for advice on XYZ, they will tell you good stuff. They really will. And then do it. Listen to them. Follow it. Well, thank you, Carol. I love talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more, visit caroldunbar.com.
If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support. 